Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. Uh, Bob is off on assignment today, but he'll be back soon. Uh, And today we are going to be talking about social movements, one of our favorite things to talk about. Uh, When people think about Occupy Wall Street, many talk about it as a failure. When people talk about the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016, in 2020, they talk about it as a viral phenomenon, but they, with they, with in both of those cases, we don't really actually talk about the organizing that went into them and built up and led up to that moment. And so, joining us today to talk about that is Jay Ponty. Uh, Jay is a grassroots political organizer, trainer, consultant who's participated in some of the most important social movements of the last decade, including Occupy Wall Street, Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns and then the uh, indigenous uprising, indigenous-led uprising at Standing Rock. And Jay is also the author of a book called Be the Revolution, uh, How Occupy Wall Street and the Bernie Sanders Movement Reshaped American Politics. And the book is going to be a a lot of what we're talking about. So Jay, welcome to Green and Red Podcast. Hey, Scott. Glad to be here. Yeah, really happy to have you here. Maybe, like, you know, just kind of talking about the book, um, Maybe let's kick off with maybe just talk a little bit about uh, why and how you joined the Occupy movement. That's the early part of the book. It seems to be like a really sort of foundational piece of your journey that you kind of take through the social movements of the 2010s. Um, But like, what were the circumstances that brought you to Occupy Wall Street? Yes. To the Occupy Wall Street movement. I know you're in different Occupy spaces. Yeah, so I was in the Los Angeles occupation, downtown Los Angeles occupation outside of City Hall. Um, And I had been doing community organizing as a basically doing punk rock shows since Mm -hmm. 2001, um, but never really had any um, foray into leftist organizing or leftist ideals. Um, I definitely was very hyper aware of, you know, the challenges facing humanity, you know, sort of obliquely. and at the time I was organized, I was much more into this, what you might call the peace movements. Um, and at the time I was organizing um, a big peace concert uh, on 11-11-11. And, um, and then some people who were organizing in Occupy LA knew that I did concerts and they had a concert coming up for a rally for Robert Reich and uh, Oza Motley. And I had known actually, I'd known Oza Motley for years. And so I came in to help out on that rally and concert to help um, organize that. Um, I wasn't by any means like the lead organizer on any of it, but you know, I, I was an experienced concert producer. So I came in to help out. And um, and that was sort of my first experience. And it was amazing. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe that there were a thousand people camped out on the lawn surrounding city hall and it was such a vibrant place of ideas and the energy was really incredible it was like a punk rock circus um and uh and and so i just i i went every day <laughs> you know i just i went every day i 
constantly was trying to bring people in and um you know like i i would you know trying to bring in uh, celebrity supporter friends of mine like i brought you know marla maples i, I brought her down to to occupy la um which was kind of crazy and then um a pivotal moment happened for me the first night they tried to take no sorry it was the second night they tried to take down the la encampments um i was teaching sort of uh meditation doing med i was leading meditation groups and also talking about de-escalation and Gandhian nonviolence, that kind of stuff. And they showed up with about, LAPD showed up with about 1500 riot cops. And um, we, you know, I was part, my, a few friends of mine were trying to de-escalate with the police. And, and all of a sudden I got jabbed in the ribs with a, with a baton. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I could and 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 that for me was like a moment. There was a kind of a moment in time, like, oh my God, this is what happens when you try to challenge state power. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we know that they that they were the call it the um the establishment, you know, uh, it's a, a term I refer to as the corporate state, which mm-hmm. is how the 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 corporate media, elected officials, law enforcement, and the private sector, work together in a direct way they strat- strategically organize to suppress populist movements um they were it's, you know happened at standing rock happened during the bernie campaign happened during occupy and they i'm sure it's happening during cop city and 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 blm and all of the other uprisings ferguson um, ferguson so yeah so so that was the that was a big um that was a big moment for me where my 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 i went oh shit the class war is real yeah how how long did was was Occupy LA? How long were was did the did the camp happen? So not I, long. I, after, if I remember correctly, the the big crackdown on the camps was early December of that year. If I'm if I remember correctly, uh, actually, I want to say New York was New York was taken apart in November because Thanksgiving when we had Thanksgiving, one of my favorite Thanksgivings that I've ever spent was at Occupy LA. Um, they had already taken down, um, or they had just taken down the New York encampment, I believe. So we were, we were sensing that it was kind of the calm before the storm. So I want to say November and then, you know, the, the crackdowns continued. Um, but I, I want to say when they, they swept the camp, um, was, I want to say it was end of, end of, end of things giving maybe early, maybe first week of December, something like that. Yeah. But a couple months. And, you know, you're talking about 1500. LAPD riot police there. How, how big was the encampment at Occupy LA? I know yeah, it, I, I in Zuccotti Park, it was huge. People. thousand it was people. about a thousand people completely surrounding uh, City Hall. De- very different space than Zuccotti. Um, very, very different space. Uh, we had this sort of like big parks around um, around LA, LA City Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, ex- is extraordinary. I mean, if it, I mean, just imagine going to any one of your friends and be like, I got this idea. Let's get a thousand people and we'll lay siege to city hall for three months. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they're going to think you're outside of your mind. And yet this happened. Um, and it was such a powerful place. And I, I think there are also some important lessons um, that maybe should have gotten unpacked more on a larger level that mm-hmm. I don't think quite moved seeped into the movement culture. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think there are some lessons to take away from that, from a theory of change. But also, some people did take away um, some some powerful lessons, which eventually became the Bernie Sanders movement. Right, and you know, with the number of occupies, 
you know, it was it was this like very big focus on financial institutions, on the banks, on Wall Street. And so how did that how did that play out in Los Angeles? Was was it also targeting, you know, banking institutions that were were there or were there, you know, other targets of the sort of power elite, I guess you could say, that were that were uh, feeling the heat of Occupy L.A.? Yeah. So it, you know, because of inter Occupy and digital ops, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the there were there was a connective tissue between all of the you know, a lot of the different encampments and, mm -hmm. you know, the tech teams um, were, you know, there were, there were, there was dialogue about, about some of those central goals. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that at some, sometimes whether it might've been agent provocateurs intentionally um, infiltrating to sort of co-opt the, uh, the messaging and create bad optics, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, part of the playbook. But um, I, you know, generally it was around uh, Citizens United, economic inequality, um, mm -hmm. you know, the money in politics, you know, obviously the 2008 crisis, which was fraud, you know, they, you know, it was fraud, the subprime loans, they in effect crashed the world economy um, and it was fraud and, and working poor working class people were the ones who, who felt, felt the heat. So, um, so yeah, you know, but, but Occupy was really a vibrant place of discussing ideas and, it was a moment where a lot of Americans got a class consciousness awakening. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of ordinary, you know, I want to say ordinary, but working class people, you know, and, and, and I think it's important to realize that prior to Occupy, there was no dialogue about the 1% or the 99% or understanding uh, oligarchy the way we do today. It was really any discussion was framed as class war in a negative way. Like, mm -hmm. oh, that's socialism. That's class war. That's there really wasn't a space to talk about it in the national dialogue in the way that we do today. Um, and that I think was one of the huge outcomes. You know, I, I, I uh, once did this little research project on my own and I actually, there's websites so you can look at what the top headlines are for any given month. And yes. in, in August, 2011, it was basically this race to the bottom where Obama and the Republicans are talking about where they can cut the budget, where they can implement austerity on the, budget that you know is, is the social safety net in september 2011 all the headlines are about occupy camps springing up all over the country which is bringing up this sort of you know this point around you know economic inequality the power of the power elite uh you know uh, for all intents and purposes like uh, a, probably a non-violent class war you know compared to other class wars in history and so it's just it's just an, it's an interesting thing, which is the narrative completely shifted. And I actually think that was the real power of Occupy. Mm -hmm. um, I recently went to a, an event with um, some more Jacobin related podcasters um, and the topic of Occupy came up. And uh, one of these podcasters, actually Ben Burgess, actually went on a rant about Occupy Wall Street, about how it wasn't a real political movement. There was no demands. There were no leaders, which I disagree with. I come out of like anarchist direct action. And so I know there's issues with structurelessness, structurelessness, but I also feel like there's like some important things that also happen in these spaces. And I'm just wondering what you, how you feel about that. There were demands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were literally demands. So, um, you know, I, I, I think if you weren't there, it's really quite hard to understand really what it was. Um, and, you know, a lot of people did experience it through live streaming. It was one, the base, it was, if I think it was basically the first um, 
social uprising that was live streamed. Like we had that technology mm -hmm. and created our own media because the media was definitely not going to cover it fairly accurately or at all. Yeah. Um, and it was constantly framed. Um, you know, the framing of, of these things is matters, you know, the way this is framed in the public discourse, the tropes that the media uses. Again, we, we've seen that in every, in, in all of these uprisings, you know, um, ever since. Um, but yeah, you know, there, you can look up, uh, you know, 13, there's 13 demands. You can, you can look them up, um, from, uh, guaranteeing living wages, free education. I mean, there was a conversation on borders, uh, outlaw crediting reporting agencies. Um, you know, there were, I think the, one of the demands was around, um, unionization, the right for workers to unionize. So there definitely were demands, mm -hmm. uh, that's just not true. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it's people who, who are on the outside commenting, um, don't really understand what happened there. And there were really quite, there were very serious people. There were people who were, you know, WTO 99 battle for Seattle organizers. And, you know, um, it was a really powerful moment. And, and again, yeah, there, there are, I also have critiques, you know, the tyr tyranny of structurelessness, I think is definitely a valid critique. Um, you can't really have an effective meeting with 400 people, you know, um, but, but I think the main, especially thing, by consensus, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, you, you know, not, not logistically possible. However, I think a lot, one of the takeaways is, now, some people really stayed very solidly. And I don't mean in the classical distinction of anarchism, it's sort of a modern distinction of anarchism that is believes, doesn't believe in voting people who identify as anarchists don't believe in electoral organizing in any way. Um, there's a faction of of that which I don't believe is 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 uh, defines anarchism by any stretch of the imagination. I I kind of like Chomsky's definition. It's any 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 power or authority that cannot justify itself is illegitimate. And um, you know, but I think a lot of us uh, who watched while we were getting crushed under the jackboots. Um, of, of police who were organizing, you know, sheriffs and mayors were having conference calls to with with private sector consultants to to, to strategize how to how to dismantle us and the and the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, and Homeland is crazy. Um, meanwhile, the Tea Party, the Coke funded Tea Party populist uprising, um, you know, elected eighty four people, you know, wingbats to Congress, and they completely changed. The Republican Party, um, uh, and so I think a lot of us saw that as a lesson, and I think that's where the People for Bernie, um, you know, initiative sprang out of. But a lot of us saw that, um, you know, the, the the sort of the right wing populists were building power with their terrible. I mean, just just terrible, um, but they were effectively building power. Whereas we we you know the the tactic of occupation is not was not the movement. That's the thing that a lot of people, the people who thought that the tact, the occupation itself as a tactic was the movement. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no way to sustain occupation as a tactic. Yeah. You know, the, the indigenous organizers at Alcatraz did it for two years. I mean, really impressive, but eventually, um, you know, occupation as a, as a tactic is not a, is not usually a viable one unless you're a, a state. Yeah. <laughs> unless, it, unless you're, Unless you're a state, you know. The French did it all through the second half of the 19th century, and it never really worked, right? Right. <laughs> the Paris Commune was eventually cracked down on. Right. Um, just to um, shift a little bit, you know, 
same movement kind of moving into a different space. How did you go from Occupy to the Sanders campaign? And, you know, maybe talk about some of the connections between the Occupy, the Occupy movement and the Sanders campaign, which, you know, emerges like four or five years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for me, I was one of those people who who came out of um, Occupy really thinking about needing to build Occupy the structures of power. So leveraging the the power of outside organizing, because um, it's really powerful to have a, a thousands of people, you know, and, and by the time they took down the camp, I mean, 10,000 people would show up. Uh, so it's really powerful to have that many people in one space behind a single intention. But I thought a lot about how to how to then leverage that power. How do we create um, how do we create structures that we can leverage? You know, in the way that unions do. You know, unions have inside people collectively bargaining with um, with the stakeholders, and then they have you know the rank and file who can strike and march and you know picket, um, and they leverage the it's, it's an inside outside strategy. So I started getting more involved with targeting um, both local in LA and, and elected officials. Um, actually, a, a city councilman um, member named Bill Rosendahl was one of my political mentors, and he worked for the Bobby Kennedy. He was with Bobby Kennedy when he was assassinated, and this fabulous gay man who was just really progressive kind of firebrand. And um, he took me, I met him, um, He I met him through Occupy, um, I wasn't like acting on behalf of Occupy, but um, he wanted to meet with some occupiers um, to try to come up with some some viable solutions because he wanted to support what we were doing. And that's how I met him. And we continued a relationship through that. And he helped me to sort of understand a little bit more how um, how local politics worked in L.A. And then, uh, you know, kind of branched off into um, working with a few different like making relationships with with Congress people. Um, and so I was sort of in those conversations when uh, Marianne Williamson had her her sister giant event where she had Bernie Sanders as one of the main speakers. And I didn't know this at the time, but um, there was a lateral campaign being being launched, two campaigns, one by Tim Carpenter and Progressive Democrats of America and the other by Charles Lenchner and uh, who was with Occupy um, Tech Ops in Zuccotti Park. Um, and he also was um, one of the first refuseniks in the um, in the IDF. So he was uh, he was Israeli born, and he was one of the first refuseniks to refuse service because mm -hmm. of the occupation. Um, and and he he did that. He was jailed in support of uh, the Palestinian people. And so he uh, he launched he he basically wrangled a bunch of occupiers around the country to launch the ninety nine events for the ninety nine percent. And initially, they started off trying to recruit Elizabeth Warren, and she eventually declined. And so their strategy was was then to pivot to Bernie Sanders, um, whose memes were performing really well. And the message, you know, he was really on message in alignment with the Occupy ideals. They created an open letter. This is well before the senator uh, announced his candidacy, or he, he really did not want to run. And that's the thing that I think is important for people to understand is Bernie did not want to run wasn't his plan. Um, and occupiers saw um, the disaster of a, a Clinton presidency as a continuation of the war machine in Wall Street and neoliberalism. And uh, originally they tried Elizabeth Warren as a, as a tactic, but then pivoted to Bernie Sanders when she, she literally told them to fuck off. 
Um, I, I said this talking to which, people. Which is ironic because her Senate campaign was really kind of propelled by the Occupy movement in 2012. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and you can argue that Obama ran his second term based on against uh, Mitt, you know, Mitt Romney, who was like the poster boy for the 1%. And Obama pretty much jacked like the whole Occupy ideal. He then kind of ran on a, on a lot of the ideals we talked about. But they launched the uh, the 99 events for the 99%, which became a lot of the, the groups for Bernie ahead of um, the campaign. And that kind of became the movement. Um, and but I, I I met Bernie first through the uh, through Marianne Williamson's Sister Giant event where he spoke. And uh, he's like, look, it's not going to work. She's like, Bernie, are you going to write? He, are you going to run? You know, he's like, look, what I want to do isn't going to work unless there is a grassroots movement behind us, you know, and that was kind of a spiel. And then everybody was chanting, run, Bernie, run, like the entire mm -hmm. room stood up. Um, and I, I don't, I wasn't quite on board yet because he seemed very like meek and uncomfortable. Like he's like, he really didn't want to be there. He seemed like he, he yeah. seemed like he really, really didn't want to be there. And, uh, and so I wasn't really, and I went to meet him after afterwards <laughs> And, and I'm kind of used to like politicians kind of glad handing me. And I went to introduce myself and talk about connections. He's like, yeah, yeah, good, 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 good kid. He like completely blew me. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> like, yeah. he doesn't give a fuck. And then yeah. I went and watched, I, I just started watching some of his videos. And there was one video of him absolutely annihilating Alan Greenspan. And I was mm. like, oh shit, it's Bernie. I went, oh my God, it's him. And then from that moment on, and that would have been like early 2015 mm. From that moment on is that's when I first felt the burn. And then I ended up getting involved with the campaign. Um, I proposed to them. I created a secret group called Bernie's Avengers, mm. which is a way to recruit. Um, I mean, I was in Hollywood, so I have um, I just had by, by virtue of where I lived, I had access to um, people in the entertainment industry. And um, and so I created Bernie's Avengers as a secret team to recruit and organize uh, political surrogates and entertainment industry professionals to do uh, a lot of groovy, fun, fun things. Yeah, that was my next question is actually who were Bernie's Avengers? Oh, yeah. So Bernie's Avengers, um, Bernie's Avengers were it, it was working with Louis Calderon, who is the um, the the youth vote manager, arts and culture and youth vote manager. So basically, he was the one who was booking a lot of the bands and a lot of the political circuits stumping. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I, I recruited friends of mine who are in, in the industry to recruit their friends. So, uh, and then we just, we started, we used it as a container to then funnel into the campaign, but we also kept our own autonomous group uh, with the idea that um, we could do stuff that was off books that the campaign would benefit from but wouldn't have to be a answerable to like we organized direct actions you know i had you know francis fisher um oh god uh gabby hoffman who you might know from field of dreams and transparent amazing actress um amazing actor you know they came out when we threw a thousand dollars in the air at secretary clinton's motorcade um outside of a george clooney a thirty thousand dollar george clooney fundraiser and that became like you know, international news, that kind of thing. So, but, you know, we would also recruit bands like, and it was so last minute, like Louis, Louis would call us and be like, I need someone for, I need someone for New Hampshire next week. And so then we would 
we would put the call out to all of our bands and then we'd, we'd say, how about Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros? And you're like, yeah. And then you would get them on a plane. And it was always very like, <laughs> very, you know, chaotic and last minute, but we were able to like, we had a, we ended up amassing a pretty incredible group of people from, you know, Shailene Woodley was part of our group and uh, Kendrick Sampson, Francis Fisher and uh, Josh Fox, um, you know, uh, David Braun, our good friend, David Braun, um, was, was very, very strong member and we were all over the country and we were every day, all day. It was Bernie every day, all day. We also did, um, we had kind of a secret rapid response to, to some of the dumpster fires happening on Twitter or whenever they were, there would be, uh, you know, AP for instance, calling the election in California for secretary Clinton before the primary kind of weird. You know, mm -hmm. 160,000 Brooklynites getting disenfranchised. Uh, you know, so we would, we also had kind of a rapid response Twitter group, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, and uh, all sorts of cool things, college tours. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we created Bernie's Diner. Uh, so mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of super fun stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting in 2016 when we began to see, um, uh, probably during the convention, maybe it was even after the convention, where we actually start to see how the DNC had actually purposely undermined the Sanders campaign. I, I feel like there's this moment where we have this sort of break between like the progressive left and definitely kind of left Democrats um, and and Clinton. Maybe that's part of what contributed to her eventual loss that fall. But I'm just wondering, as you're you know, we're going through 2016 and, you know, the Sanders campaigns happens. He eventually, you know, loses and concedes to Clinton, but then it, it, it comes out that the, the DNC had actually done a lot of behind the scenes stuff to sort of undermine him. I'm wondering what the feeling was amongst some of these more hardcore Bernie supporters at the time. Great question. There's so much to unpack there. We could spend hours just talking about this it's so important and so relevant today. Um, a number of points to impact is yes, there was from the beginning collusion. Um, in my book, um, it talks about the relationship between the DNC and the, and, and the Clinton campaign, which essentially it was a money laundering operation. Mm -hmm. um, and that was being run through, they had the same lawyers and the lawyers had kind of set up this money laundering operation where, because the D Obama had left the DNC bankrupt. And so the Clinton in more ways than one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so they, they were bringing money in, but then it would get funneled back to the Clinton campaign eventually. And because of that, the Clinton campaign um, had an agreement, a signed agreement but that their mutual lawyers crafted where the Clinton campaign actually had quite a lot of say over how the primaries were run and how the DNC was run. And who, as we know, like, you know, her former deputy campaign manager, uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was allowed to run the primaries. I mean, and you can see all of the ways from, you know, cutting, um, cutting the number of debates when the debates were scheduled. Um, you know, the WikiLeaks came out, confirmed a lot of what, what progressives already knew was, was true that there were members of the media were colluding with the campaign mm. to, uh, to drive, um, baseless tropes. And to also to even give um, debate questions were given to the campaign. This also came back out in, um, oh God, uh, Donna Brazil's book, Hacks, mm -hmm. I, I want to mm -hmm. say. So, you know, she, she was the, I think the vice chair of the DNC. Um, 
and uh, and it came out in her book as well. So this isn't conspiracy theory stuff. Um, and then what happened was Debbie Wasserman was brought onto the campaign right after all of those leaks came out. So what happened is you had a really strong message being sent at a time when they were crying unity. Um, but a number of us, there's a chapter in my book on the, the fight at the Democratic Platform Committee, mm -hmm. which I think was, a, it might've been the time when the left has actually wielded the most strategic power and influence as a collective. Because Bernie, on, on Secretary Clinton's side, you had fracking lobbyists and you had, you know, it was mostly, you know, representatives of, of her wealthy donors um, or their agents. Um, people like Trevor Hauser, who was a, you know, fracking lobbyist, you know, was in charge of her en energy policy. And they were, they were trying to guide what the, this wasn't even an official, this was really just a piece of paper talking about what the next four years were going to look like. But for progressives, like people like Cornell West and Bill McKibben, who are all uh, David Braun, who are all on the platform committee, this was something that they were going to use to organize around. Mm -hmm. And um, and and the, the the lengths that they went to to fight us on this. So they were crying unity. But I actually had this conversation with Mark Elias, uh, one of Clinton's um, lawyers, and uh, he he became infamous for the Steele dossier. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, Steele dossier. Um, he became infamous for that. But I had a conversation with him where essentially he was he he said to me, he's like, look, we're you know, I, I told him, like, you were you're going to lose the election here because Secretary Clinton is not going to be able to win without the support from the progressive movement. We're the most energetic. Um, we're the most energetic people in the country on the left who care about these issues. And this race, and basically he said, we have the data, the data is clear, everybody's going to come on board and vote for Clinton. And I looked at him and I got a little intense and I said, you need to listen to me. This race is going to come down to the angry white guys that got fucked over by NAFTA in the Rust Belt. Yeah. And you're going to find that when the real numbers come in in late September, early October, that you're losing. Yeah. Because you don't understand what's happening out there. Um, you don't understand. I had driven i drew i did probably twelve thousand miles in 2016 for bernie and for standing rock and i mean i met people in the rust belt who were lifelong democrats that spit on the ground when they heard secretary clinton's name because of nafta um men and women and uh there was a lot they didn't really understand the rage and the desperation people felt and that eventually showed up in the convention I don't like giving this person credit but to the credit of steve bannon and donald trump they actually picked up on that vibe and you know campaign i mean you know trump swept most or all of the rust belt states definitely ones that the democrat the obama had carried in 2008 and 2012 and the democrats had you know traditionally carried at least since the early 90s like michigan wisconsin ohio pennsylvania and and the and the clinton campaign was completely tone deaf to that yes I, yeah yeah absolutely but it's it's important to understand though that actually bernie supporters voted for Hillary in greater percentages than mm -hmm. Hillary supporters in 2008 voted for Obama. Yeah. That, you know, that's, that's actually an important comparison that we actually bring up on this show. Like our show, I mean, we're, we consider ourselves the radical left and we critique that we can treat the democratic establishment probably more than we do Republicans. And I think that's an important thing to, to note is that Sanders endorsed Clinton in 2016 made i believe dozens of campaign appearances for her and much more than the clintons did for obama in 2008 like and which led to you know what you just described yes 
That's true. He went all over the country. The tactic and, and after Clinton la- lost, yes. it also became a Democratic talking point to blame Bernie Sanders. Yes, exactly. So Democratic establishment to, talking point. If you go to um, uh, the website, betherevolution.us mm-hmm. um, backslash home, there's mm-hmm. actually a free chapter download. Um, I actually wrote a, uh, an autopsy. It's a free bonus chapter that didn't my, my editor didn't put it in the book because it's a little too didactic. Um, mm. The book is mostly, the approach to the book is mostly narrative-based storytelling, kind of gonzo. Um, it's kind of gonzo Hunter S. Thompson style storytelling. And this chapter was very like, it was based on an article I wrote that's called 27 Reasons That Trump Won That Have Nothing To Do With Susan Sarandon. And, <laughs> you know, spoiler alert, neoliberalism is a big part of that. Um, but, uh, but there's a, and you know, the Democrats never did an autopsy, you know, in the way that the, the Republicans did an autopsy after, uh, Barack Obama won, they went back there like, okay, how do we get here? Um, the Democrats never did that. And and the thing is important people for people to understand is they don't care because what is important to the democratic establishment is to just keep the money flowing. Like that's really what it comes down to. And they raise a lot of money off of Trump. So it's not it's not really about substantive issues or governance. You know, it's about, you know, they they're it, it doesn't really matter. So they will gaslight us when it comes down to it. And they'll try to find any other reason except for looking at the endemic corruption that that is directly tied to the money in politics and yeah. their fundraising model, which the Bernie Sanders movement and it's really important. The book makes a very strong distinction between the movement and the and the campaign. That's so important, you know, because uh, the main one of the central ideas of the book is to dismantle the notion that anybody's coming to save us, to stop looking at politicians to save us. No Mm -hmm. one is coming to save us. It is up to you and I to organize ourselves and build power. And it gives examples of how one to small groups have done that successfully and changed the world. Right. You are listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. And if you're listening to us on your favorite audio platform, please give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And if you really like what you're hearing, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron or make a one-time donation by going to our website at greenredpodcast.org and hitting that support button. You know, just talking about that sort of like movement building, power building, um, you know, we've, and a little bit of what we touched on through the whole thing is we see this sort of like trajectory, you know, from Occupy to Ferguson, you know, and all of the BLM uprisings that came after every time we see a, a young black man murdered by police to Standing Rock to the real anti-Trump resistance, not where it's Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, you know, with a hashtag or tearing up a piece of paper in front of him to, you know, what happens in 2020 and what's happening right now around Gaza. And, you know, the campaign, the Sanders campaign happens in there. Um, You know, what, uh, what, lots of other uprisings around pipelines, I always don't ever want to forget those, but like, you know, what do you account for, you know, this continued sort of momentum? And sometimes it doesn't seem like it's a lot of people sometimes it doesn't seem like it's a lot of people in comparison to like how large the country is, but it's, it's been having an impact where we've changed narratives. We've defeated pipelines, you know, we've, you know, 
we had a whole movement around defunding the police, which the Democrats also have turned on. But I'm wondering, what do you think is continuing to keep this momentum going? And, you know, similar thing going on with Gaza right now. It's like we have huge protests and huge movements and like the Democrats aren't moving. But like, I, maybe it's a two part question. What what do you account for? Like what continues the moment, the movement going? And then also what do you, you kind of described a little bit, but just like, you know, why or is the establishment, at least on the Democrat side, so, you know, intransigent? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Again, a lot, lot to unpack. Big, that's a big question. I'm saying it's a big question. Probably should have broke it down into two or three. Um, so, on the negative side, um, basically, in prior elections, it was the, the main narrative was always, what, how much did they raise? That was always the number one factor. How mm -hmm. much did the candidate raise? Basically, whoever raised the most money was the presumptive front runner and would be the presumptive candidate. Now, then you have Bernie who comes in and raises more money than a Barack Obama raised in his general election in the primary. All of a sudden that narrative doesn't hold anymore. This is terrifying because the entire system that um, began in around 93, 94, so it was Newt Gingrich who originally came up with the idea that we're not here to have town halls, we're not here to meet with constituents, we are here to dial for dollars and do fundraisers for corporations and rich people, that's the game. Pelosi followed suit um, within a year, the Democrats, the third way Democrats, uh, basically who got their asses kicked by Reagan in the 80s. They're the, they basically said followed suit. And from that point on, it was really about one thing, which is raising money from wealthy donors. Now, it you it's a del delicate balance because how do you actually govern in a way that's not going to piss off those donors? So that becomes the prime driver for both parties like that's the prime driver and that you have to understand that to understand how this washington apparatus works and why they resisted a crowdfunded model that was actually beholden to constituents beholden to average americans who did not want to see their candidates running raising money from super PACs and from wealthy donors this threatens the entire systems not to mention the consultant class who got paid a billion dollars they lit a billion dollars on fire to give Clinton advice like don't campaign in Wisconsin or Mich Michigan. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. nuts, right? So go to Iowa instead. That's a fundamental piece to understand of how corrupt the system is and why they resist uh, populism. So out of that, it's important to understand that populism in times of great economic inequality, like we're reaching record levels of inequality, eight men control half as much wealth as the rest of the fucking planet, you know? We are living in an oligarchy, okay? Everybody knows it. And people, it is continually a race to the bottom for working people. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, the, it's a pop, times of populism is going to go one of two directions. It's going to go Hitler or FDR. Either you, rail, you, you address economic inequality and social programs like FDR did, or it goes the way of fascism which is scapegoating minorities and a strongman culture and um, and everything that's arisen out of the MAGA movement, which is what Bannon and, um, you know, Bannon, you know, these, this is, these are, this is a global movement. Bannon is advising Bolsonaro, you know, like the fascists are a global movement and this is what Trump has been able to capitalize on. Okay. Yeah. Now what's come out of that to, to kind of answer the second part of your question is, um, there prior to 2001 there was no there, the anti-war left was nowhere 
right? So you're seeing this incredible um, outpouring of, of outrage over what's happening. And that's important because before that, no one was paying attention. No one was paying attention to the forever wars during the Obama administration. No one was paying attention to the fact that Secretary Clinton and Obama created a failed state in Libya. You know, they were brokering billions in weapons deals to terrible dictatorships and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, creating a proxy war in Syria. No one was paying attention to that stuff during the Obama administration. So you are looking at a mass awakening um, of people whose worldview has shifted leftward because they saw in real time what happens when you challenge state power. And, and in the book, I make the argument that it is one continuous lineage from Occupy through Bernie Sanders, uh, through Standing Rock, and then all the way up into the modern American rebirth of American labor. So oh. you have Starbucks, Amazon labor unions, all these wonderful, and, and even within that, there's a lot to unpack because you have old power structures within the union movement. So you have the rank and file and these new labor movements kind of clashing with um, with the old bosses and the old guard. And um, and that kind of gets teased out in the 20, Bernie 2020 chapter where we see some of those dynamics um, play out to our to uh, to the to the campaign's peril, actually, um, the, the you know, some of those philosophies. Well, you have another chapter actually in there about some of the networks where the, the right wing is operating. Um, I'm wondering if you could you talk about QAnon, you talk about the alt right. I'm wondering if you could just actually just talk a little bit about some some of those networks and why you included that in this in this book. I, I, that, that's the most interesting thing to me is like you talk about these sort of like left of center movements, but then you have this one piece around the far right. Yes. So um, historically, what happens is is whenever uh, and this is going back to the French Revolution, when, you know, leftist movements make advances, innovations, um, what ends up happening is we tend to fumble on the goal line. Um, we don't tend to think it through. I mean, the ubiquitous we um, think it through. Uh, 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 all the way in terms of like, how does this translate into governance? What ends up happening is is the right ends up co-opting these um, ideas and using them to, to build power. Um, the left tends to, I, I believe we spend so much time, we don't build power because we hate, we we spend so much time organizing against power because we look, we look at it as a negative thing. Whereas for the neoliberals and the neo-fascists, that's the whole ball game is power hegemony and they will they will find the most innovative tactics because they don't stand for anything they're they're there to be the mouthpieces of of the oligarchs and it's just really different factions of oligarchs but the right in particular um qanon is really i think more terrifying than people realize um i became connected to some of the groups of citizen journalists who are tracking and mapping who is actually behind QAnon, and I got into this because of I, one of my old Occupy LA cohorts um, was a central figure of intrigue in in Lisa, Lisa Cla Clapier. Yes, Clapier. yeah, Lisa Clapier, who uh, was allegedly, um, she, it, it, you know, it's in her social media. She says, "Yes, I'm I'm behind QAnon." Um, she had a, a moniker uh, called like Snow Snow White or White Queen or something. Um, and uh, and basically, they this was originally an online role playing, uh, an online role playing game. Mm -hmm. uh, there were multiple anons. There was FBI anon, high level insider anon, um, CIA anon, and of course QAnon, which is the premise is someone who has high level access um, is is a whistleblower and is letting everybody in on this this inside plot, and they feel part of it. They saw this as a way to 
um, to weaponize weaponize this for political power. Mm -hmm. And and I got into it because I had journalists reach out to me because I was part of Occupy LA. And they said, "Do you know Lacey?" And I actually I actually worked with her quite a lot after Occupy on mm -hmm. some like peace concert because she was you know in, you know you know kind of in the woo woo new age um, world, which becomes a factor because um, the new age world was a target of QAnon. So basically, yep. it starts off with this uh, this this live action role play. Then all of a sudden it gets co-opted. Um, it is believed by the owners of 4chan were, were part of that. Um, part of that co-opting is a good documentary called Into the Storm by Colin Hoback, um, mm -hmm. worth worth watching. Um, a lot of different different um, ideas of, but but what you do definitely see is it starts off, um, it starts growing. Basically it's they're crowdsourcing, they're decentralized, they're distrib using distributed organizing models to crowdsource and they're because the Republican Party no longer uh, doesn't not they never stood for anything because the Republican Party doesn't stand for anything, and because the the voter the electorate is becoming more black, more brown, more progressive, their their old tactic of relying on um, Christian fundamentalists and gun nuts, you know, isn't a long term strategy. So they they looked at um, like the Trumper Trump birther movement, for instance. Um, this was a way to get a fringe community who doesn't really believe about anything politically to get more polarized around, around a conspiracy theory. And that's actually how Trump built his base was on that Obama birther conspiracy. And so you have people like Jerome Corso, who's one of the architects of um, swift boat veterans against Kerry and the Obama birther conspiracy. He was one of the architects of that strategy. He then becomes a player in QAnon pretty, as it starts getting, um, more steam, you start seeing member ex-members of intelligence community, um, ex-CIA people, um, once and then Trump operatives, uh, Roger Stone, uh, Jerome Corso, uh, start become start meeting with some of the central organizers of of this QAnon live action role play, and they essentially create uh uh they they create a psyop, they create false narratives that that Tom Hanks and Oprah are and Hillary Clinton are uh, and Joe Biden are are kidnapping babies to drink their blood for immortality. I'm not making this up. This is no, really, no, no, no. 33 million people believe that. But the punchline, including members that, of Congress. Yeah, exactly. Trump, um, Trump. That's the swamp he rose out of. It's important to know this because when you stifle healthy populist movements, you are going to give birth to fascism, fascist movements. That's the natural conclusion of where this goes. That's how, and this, and, and, and that directly led to, I show the progression from Pizzagate through um, early days of QAnon and the alt-right up until the insurrection. And I actually, there were people who reached out to me and tried to recruit me for, for the insurrection, um, which mm. I also talk about. Um, mm. And it's terrifying because we don't realize how close we came to, we might've come to an actual fascist coup, um, mm. you know, like a, like a Handmaid's Tale style Gilead coup. And, and there's another person who you knew through Occupy LA and who was at Standing Rock with you who also was involved in this, Mickey, Mickey Willis. Mickey Willis, I knew, um, I knew Mickey Willis well prior to, to, to any of that. I knew him through um, the sort of conscious media world, the peace movement world, really mm -hmm. gifted filmmaker. Um, and he, I actually brought him into the Bernie campaign. Mm -hmm. um, he, he started, you know, he did some filming for the campaign. 
um, and then what happened is he, it's just insane. Like you couldn't make this up. He then goes to Standing Rock with, um, allegedly goes to Standing Rock with Lisa Clapier. And um, it is believed that Lisa Clapier then red pills him into QAnon. Um, and he becomes sort of, he becomes a Q person. Um, and this was actually a conscious tactic with uh, hashtags like save the children, where they, they brought in a lot of like, they preyed on a lot of like, yoga people, new age people who thought that they were joining a movement to save children when it was really just a, a psyop. And then Mickey eventually goes on to um, create a little film called Plandemic, mm -hmm. which so so it's it's like the gumbo and, and of anti-vax, anti-vax is, you know, anti-vax, uh, whatever you want to call it, ideas are actually very popular in that new age sort of woo movement yes. too. But part of that was a psyop part of it is because there is this terrible venn diagram where the they were targeted it was a consciously targeted campaign to look into those um to to mobilize those you know because they they don't really subscribe they, they haven't really picked a side they're kind of in the like you know we're in peace and love but it also shows that there's still like you know new age ideas don't address white supremacy you know like it doesn't heal white supremacy there's a lot of white supremacy in those um those communities but um, but anyways, that's the point. The punchline is that um, you eventually get you eventually get fascism. Um, and if we want to bring it back to fossil fuels even further, that swamp was partially grown out of the Koch brothers' campaign to wage war on objective science. And so so the the Koch brothers' very conscious, deliberate misinformation campaign laid the groundwork for a lot of this, um, a lot of these conspiracy theories, which were then weaponized. Um, and then you even see like an like Mike Pence was kind of their guy. What Mike Pence was the Koch brothers guy. So Nikki Haley's their person, their guy now. Yeah. So, so I, but, but we need to look at these things because as we're facing the climate apocalypse, we also have fascism to contend with. And, um, and there's right in real time how it becomes relevant to 2016 is the disillusionment on the left and the, the the democratic establishments ignoring of the left their outrage over the the genocide in Gaza. Um, so genocide we're watching happening in real time. The U.S. is enabling it, participating directly. It's been participating directly in genocide with with the Saudis in Yemen, and this has been part of the playbook. So finally, the left is the, the anti-war left has woken up. I, I would say directly in part because of um, these movements that we've been talking about has contributed towards that awakening. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it's even getting to the point where people have become so disillusioned with the Biden administration's enabling that they are going to become sympathetic. People who I know have been rational, mostly rational people, organizers, are, not, are, are even starting to look at Trump as the anti-war candidate. And that is really terrifying um, because, you know, we really are, I don't think people really understand the dangers of, of another Trump. And I'm not, I'm not arguing in favor of Biden. I am not a fan of Biden. I think mm -hmm. he's, I think it's, it's just a travesty. I, it's terrible. It's, like, I, it, I, it, I mean, me either. And, yeah. you know, I'm as I come out of anti-authoritarian anti-war movements way back. It, it's, it's worth noting that Trump, basically has said that he wouldn't do anything different as far as supporting the Israelis go. And he actually wants to have a plan to deport Palestinians from the U S so. Yeah, of course. But, but again, like this is, this is where 
this is where, and again, a part of the theory of change I talk about is also doing some of the inner work to heal our trauma and to develop resilience and to take care of ourselves, self-care, because it's too much psychically to bear. And, and we're not able to think clearly to see that it's like to, to argue that Trump is the anti-war candidate to, to realize like, it, just as you said, he would not do anything differently. And, you know, he dropped a record number of bombs. He's not the anti-war candidate, you know? No. So, and, and but to, to minimize, uh, for me, it's the whole point of the book is to shift the paradigm from looking at saviors. Like, it's not about who do I like is not a factor. Mm -hmm. You know, who I like is not a factor. Looking to the people for Bernie, candidates are tactics. The question is, who do you want to organize against? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Yeah. Who do you want to build power and, and organize against? That mm -hmm. is the only relevant question because we are trained to be consumers and to look at candidates like they're my most favorite brand of kombucha. My brand of kombucha is the most organic. And they want a candidate who looks and thinks like them. And that's just not relevant because they don't give a fuck about you. Yeah. They don't. They don't care yeah. about you. They're not there for you. They aren't. And we need to think about how can we make changes on a local level, on a state level. Federal is, we shouldn't ignore the federal level. It's much harder. But the paradigm needs to shift to how can I organize in real life, build power, build voting constituencies, build coalitions, leverage that power to make demands because power concedes nothing without a demand. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is, that is the only relevant question, not who do you like, who do you like does not matter. Absolutely. And I, I, I think, you know, kind of based on some of what you just talked about, particularly with this sort of reawakening anti-war or this new anti-war movement, anti-intervention peace movement is it's worth noting that if the Democrats actually do lose in November, they're going to, that's who they're going to turn on. They're not going to blame Trump. They're not going to yes. blame their own ineptitude. Uh, they're not going to blame their own corruption. They're going to turn on the left. You know, that could be Jill Stein and Cornell West. That's going to be, you know, yeah. pro-Palestinian anti-war protesters, what what have you. And it's, that that is like also an important thing to recognize as well. Yes. And, and there's a concept I also talked about called prefiguratism. Um, that I learned through Jonathan Smucker's book, um, Hegemony, How to, really strongly recommend that book. Um, I also reference uh, the, the um, um, This is an Uprising, um, Paul and Mark Engler's book, also a really important book for organizers to read. But the concept of prefigurative politics is we step over the strategic element, thinking about the outcome, how we're, we're working towards a specific outcome. <clears throat> and we focus on performative actions of just doing something in the moment and that becomes the end in itself. And, and that's a super important co conversation because we need to think it through. You gotta play the tape forward and rarely are these conversations playing the tape forward. Are we thinking it through? Just how does this actually play out? Um, and that that I think is is an endemic critique of of leftist organizing spaces is, you know, you know, it's one thing to get out and chant whose streets are streets, but how does that actually change the systems of oppression that we live in? You know, we got to think it through. How do how how are our organizing actions going to mobilize enough people and leverage the stakeholders and the power structures to change policies? How do we write policies ourselves? How do we change budgets? Who's wielding those budgets? You know, all of these things. You know, yes, we are in an oligarchy. Yes, it is a duopoly, but actually, there is a reason why the Coke network spends a billion dollars to try to buy your vote or to keep you from voting because we do still have some of those democratic 
institutions available to us. It's just the uh, the oligarchy and the duopoly and the corporations and the ruling class are the ones who really take make the most use of those systems. No, I think that leads right into what my last question is, which is, you know, what is next from the book? What is what is what what is your path from you put this book out? I I, I uh, you know, there's I, I think there's some other plans that you might have if you want to just talk about some of those. Thanks. Um, well, so there's originally this book was called the Political Revolutionaries Handbook, and it was the original manuscript was like 750 pages. And the uh, uh, one of the original publishers I was working with, um, um, actually, hold on, I'll just grab. No, it's not. Um, I had one of the original manuscripts. Uh, but anyways, it, it's a it's a combination of like a handbook for organizers with this um, with what I hope is a modern theory of change because a lot of our organizing ideas are still kind of stuck in the 70s. You know, like. George Lakey and, you know, a lot of this, even Saul Alinsky, like, you know, it's, it's, the world has changed a lot since 2011, 2016, and it keeps changing every year. Um, and yet our organizing theories of change have not evolved that much, whereas the right are constantly evolving. So I aim to write a book that was a modern theory of change. Um, and uh, so the next will be, uh, will, will be the um, basically this publisher said, no, one's going to want to read a book of an 800 page book in organizing. And I said, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's, that's probably, that's probably right. So, um, I pulled be the revolution was pulling out the stories and talking about the theory of change through the storytelling. Second book is much more handbooky. And then I'm going on, um, I'm going around the country doing, um, doing activist trainings. So, um, there's a, there's an activist training really trying to bring these ideas to young people because as you well know scott the ipcc report gives us less than five years to right. get our shit together and completely transform our way of life or the human species is not going to exist the way we knew it and so unfortunately like my gener our generation had at least some privilege dubious privilege to spend a decade learning and making a lot of mistakes but this generation coming up, there really isn't very much movement memory. Um, and to me, I don't believe this generation has the luxury or the, or, or the, or the, has, they can't, they need to understand what worked and what didn't work from our generation. And, it, and it's to at least deliver, at least to provide this information to young people and they can do with it what they want. Um, you know, they all, they also have their own wonderful ideas, but if you don't understand this history, the last 12 years, you can't really understand the world you live in. And you certainly can't understand what you're up against and what tactics or strategies and what theory of change is actually going to lead to, um, to being successful, you know, to bringing the kind of systemic change that we all want. And if we, if we want to find out more about the trainings or some of the next steps, you have a website for this. Yeah, you can go to be the revolution.us. Yeah. So be the revolution.us has all has has more information about that. And yeah, please uh, you know, if you go to be the revolution.us slash home and download the the free bonus chapter on why Trump won, then you'll you'll that's kind of the way to sign up on the mailing list and we'll send you a list when we're 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 getting ready to hopefully come to um to a city near you and would love to hear from anyone who's interested in um, talking about that, how to do a training with your local organizers for um, racial justice, health justice, climate justice, economic justice, unhoused justice, um, anti-war, 
Um, and so how can we all work together um, where we generally, a lot of those groups are in their own silos. And so it's how do we, how do we all work together? Um, definitely on a local level and a state level, uh, but then hopefully also connecting with a broader movement. Yeah, great. Well, Jay, thanks for joining us today and talking about Be the Revolution. This has been a good, this has been actually a, a good episode and a good, a good conversation. Um, folks, if you like what you're hearing, check us out, Green and Red Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on the mini, one of the mini audio platforms we're on, give us a rate and a review. It helps us with the algorithms. And then if you really like what you're doing, um, like what we're doing, also like what you're doing, but like what we're doing, uh, check us out at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button to make a donation or become a patron at patreon.com uh, backslash greenredpodcast. And then also just want to announce that we have these hats, trucker hats, green and red, new swag for the green and red podcast, uh, $25 donation. Just email us at greenredpodcast at gmail. Uh, and then also a copy of Bob's first book, Masters of War. If you want to make a donation of $35, just email us and we'll set you up. And uh, Jay, thanks for joining. It's been good talking. Thank um, you. That's a very slick hat, I got to say. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's, it's very fancy. Yeah, um, it's, it's very hipster. It's I feel pretty, like a very big hipster. Slick. Hipster from, you know, the mission or LA or wherever. Um, uh, everyone else, uh, we'll talk to you again soon and go out and misbehave. Mm -hmm.